anger and resentment, in my mind anyway, in my eyes, is growing rapidly around the world. And each cycle gives the other side and the enemy even more rationale for evil. And people are trying to like tweak it up. So just this weekend, they arrested a 17-year-old boy in Oregon and found bomb-making materials under the floorboards in his bedroom that were designed to do more than was done at Columbine. You have to do more these days to get people's attention. This morning, rockets from Hezbollah were falling in Beirut. And Muslims trying to get attention in England beheaded a young British soldier. And just this morning, India woke up to 24 innocent people being killed by Maoist bombs. The Communist Party of India is known as Maoists. And trying to get the attention of their cause, you know, because their cause doesn't matter what it is. The cause of an angsty 17-year-old or the political cause of communist malice, the cause is so important that they blew up this motorcade and shot all kinds of people, 24 innocent people were killed. I mean, it seems nothing compared to that, but I actually think this IRS scandal is a really big deal. And I'm not a political person, you've never heard me say a political thing from here and you never will. This is not a democratic statement. It's, this is the kind of thing that just causes more and more and more stuff to happen, just proving that no one can be trusted. And that if we're gonna get our way somehow, we have to do it through these forms of power. Well, where's the moral insight gonna come from? Where's the difference-making breakthrough gonna come from that's the answer to this kind of growing hatred? Now, I don't know about you, but I'll just, I'll just confess. I don't know how you guys like think of music in your life, but for some weird reason, some dopey reason, I like mark music in my life from cleaning my bedroom on Saturday mornings, right? So like when I was in college, it was Bachman-Turner Overdrive, taking care of business, right? Just as loud as I could, loud as my stereo could take it without blowing out the speakers, you know, BTO on a Saturday morning. And when I was about 14 in junior high school, it was the Beatles' Revolution. Remember that? Those guitar licks that were all distorted and they, who knows how many speakers they broke. Well, I, I just had Carol help me put some Beatles on my, uh, on my phone this week. And it made me think of a young John Lennon. That's about as hip as cat as you can possibly be. I'm here talking John Lennon, James Dean, Frank Sinatra. I mean, that's about as hip as they come. But you gotta remember, he was 28 years old when he wrote Revolution. 28. Your kid's age. Approximately Travis's age, my son's age. And, you know, having studied transcendental meditation and trying to think through where is the basis for something that can stop these Vietnam protests that were happening both here and in England and becoming increasingly violent. And each side threatening the other, you know, governments with the protesters and protesters against the governments, each one ratcheting up the hate and ratcheting up the power that they were willing to use to get their point across. And so John writes this meandering song 
you know, in the end, through his TM thinking, saying it's all going to be all right. It's just going to be all right. You say you want a revolution, but don't worry. It's all just going to be all right. You just need to, as John wrote, free your mind. To what? I mean, think about it for a minute. What is the essential good in a freed mind? Do you think those Maoists this morning in, in India would say that their mind's not free? A 17-year-old kid in Oregon, does he not have a free mind? A free mind is at best a possibility of a means to an end. It's not an end in and of itself. So then if we're going to try to answer that question, if, I mean, I'm, I, like I said, I'm not picking on Lennon. I mean, he's a 28-year-old kid trying to think through a difficult part of life. I'm not down on Lennon. But it does raise this question, where are we going to get some sort of difference-making insight? Is there a reality out there that could actually make a difference? And, and I would like to get at that this morning by asking, what was central to Jesus? What was central to his mind? What was his view of reality? And the answer is, of course, what was most clear to Jesus. That to which he was most self-conscious was his father, God, as we say, and his kingdom. That's what Jesus thought would actually answer human questions. Now, that seems so, like, even obnoxious to say now, right? I mean, the world's problems are so complex and so intractable. Who could possibly say that there are answers to the world's questions? We don't even, we're not even sure there's answers to the questions to our, the, the messed up stuff in our own soul. Much less these huge political, economic, how are we going to feed the earth? What about people who can't drink water? I mean, they just seem so intractable. Well, so either Jesus is kind of stupid and naive when he thinks that, oh, my father and his kingdom. So you never hear Jesus talking about social stuff or politics and really not even about the human heart per se in, in the sense of, you know, that's the ultimate answer in the hearts that he saw around them. Because what Jesus knew was that often the most precise places where the kingdom of God wasn't, was in the hearts of people around him. And of course, those human beings are the ones who occupied the places of, of a position of authority in society. And Jesus knew that actually the precise places where the kingdom actually isn't at this place reigning is the problems. And, and this leaves us, of course, with the terrible question that why, for, why would God, for his own loving wisdom, allow, allow rival kingdoms to exist and actually in a human being push his kingdom out or push his kingdom out of a Maoist party who would stoop to something like that? So what Jesus' worldview tells us is that there's one place where God's will exists perfectly. And that's within the Trinity. And that was the preoccupation of Jesus. Just listen to his words for a minute. I only do what I see my father doing. I only do what I see my father doing. And the spirit will come. A Trinitarian reality. I only say what I hear my father saying. I only say what I hear my father saying. And the spirit I will send to you. Jesus said, if my father's working on the Sabbath... I'm working on the Sabbath. Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, he who's seen me has seen the Father. 
When Jesus commissions his first friends, he tells people, go out and immerse people in the Trinitarian reality. Go immerse them in the name, which means the character, the nature of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. As I've said before, that text does not mean go get people wet. That means go train everybody you meet to live in this triune reality because this is what is real. So this raises a question that I raise for you often, but it's important. Is Jesus to you competent on these matters? I mean, does he actually know what he's talking about? That the Trinity is the grounds for reality and the only possible basis for morals. The love that exists amongst those Trinitarian persons who have each other's back, as we might say, and who love and care for and cherish and nurture one another. What if, what, if, what if that was the basis for church vestries, for crying out loud? What if that was the basis for school boards? That fundamentally, we love, cherish, nurture, expect the best, hope for the best from each other. This is what Jesus thought was actually real. So the Trinity is not some impossible theological puzzle like a Rubik's Cube. It's not an unsolvable mystery like the Bermuda Triangle. But it does raise the question, what practical connection is there to my life as I presently experience it in Orange County in 2013? What connection is there to the Trinity? Other than something I'm told that I have to believe to be a Christian. Or maybe you think I have to believe this to go, go to heaven when I die. Well, my uh, friend and mentor, Dallas Willard, who passed away a few weeks ago, and I was thinking of him yesterday, having gone to the memorial service. There's a great passage in The Divine Conspiracy where, or no, I think it's in one of his scholarly articles where Dallas says, the advantage of believing in the Trinity is that we can then live as if the Trinity were a real self-sufficing community of unspeakably magnificent personal beings. That's who the Trinity is these unspeakably magnificent personal beings who are self-sufficing and therefore can just give unconditional love. And so Dallas goes on to say, if, if in faith then we rest ourselves upon the reality of the Trinity in action, it will then graciously meet us, or better put, they or the Trinity will graciously meet us. For the Trinity is there. And as we begin to interact with it, our lives are then enmeshed with the true world of God. So this interacting, loving nature of the Trinity is the ultimate basis for morality. It's the thing that Lenin was looking for. And it's the thing that when it gets sideways, people try to enforce on each other through power. But of course, the Trinity doesn't treat each other this way. And it, therefore, is the foundation for Christian spirituality and Christian practices. As each member of the Trinity, as I said, lovingly admires and blesses and supports and inspires and builds up the others. So our readings this morning were obviously, um, you know, straightforward Trinitarian, right? Look at your Romans reading. We have peace with God, first person of the Trinity, through our Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and then God has poured out into our hearts his love through the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And in the gospel reading this morning, we see the Spirit glorifying and teaching about Jesus, 
And in doing so, he's continuing to share what Jesus said was the Father's, but had been given to him. So this raises a question, I think, when we think Trinity. Why isn't God obvious? Should make evangelism a lot easier. If he'd occasionally just, you know, show up on the 55 freeway right when somebody's about to cut somebody off and cause a six-car pileup to just kind of reach down and go, oops, over here. And it would just make evangelism a lot easier. So why isn't God obvious? Something C.S. Lewis thought about a lot, wrote about. Well, you would think that God would be, or at least could be obvious But God doesn't want to overwhelm us. He puts each human life in a position where each human being can use their will to believe in him or not. So now just think about this. It's almighty God who for his own reasons actually hides himself. Why? So that he doesn't overwhelm us and we're left in charge of our lives. And, there, and then we have a decision about what we think about him. But then we're responsible for that decision. You see, in order for us to have that choice, God leaves things so that we have to seek him. To seek this Trinitarian reality. Well, I started this morning by saying, you know, what do we mean when we say the word God? What are we actually talking about? And so I want you to think about this. This is a a quote from an old scholar pastor who lived over 100 years ago, Adam Clark. Um, not all that famous in our day, but famous in his day as kind of a rich theological preacher type. And I just want you to hear, and, I, and I, wa- I want you to not listen to this so much with your mind in the words, but just think of the kind of human being who could have said this about God and, and, and how he was interacting with God and who it is that we're actually talking about when we talk about following God or our lives being transformed by this God. So Clark wrote, God is the eternal, independent, and self-existent being. The being whose purposes and actions spring from himself without foreign motive or influence. God is absolute in dominion the most pure, the most simple, the most spiritual of all essences. Infinitely perfect and eternally self-sufficient, needing nothing that he has made. Illimitable in his immensity, inconceivable in his mode of existence, and indescribable in his essence. Known fully only by himself, because an infant mind can only be fully comprehended by itself. In a word, God is a being who from his infinite wisdom cannot err nor be deceived, and from his infinite goodness can do nothing but what is eternally just and right and kind. So now do you see why Travis leads us in? Holy, holy, holy. Can I have all of your attention? We are not playing church here. This is not about pretty vessels and candles and flowers. 
We're not striving to be Anglicans. This is the most important stuff any human being can think about. And it's been the cry of young people like John Lennon's heart for generation after generation after generation, and we seem just amazingly capable of inventing options and like falsities, but I don't mean that to be mean. I just mean like we, we give up thinking about what that which is really real in the grounds of all reality and that which could actually be the basis for solving these big human problems. And we invent all these other tangential things. And this is why this, this form of worship that we are doing, it just brings us back every week in creed and in readings and in realizing that what sits at the center of all human history is the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who broke his body and shed his blood for us. And that was the stake in the ground that says someday when it's all said and done, this God that we just read about is going to have his way. And so we sit here week after week, this little group of people just rehearsing over and over and over again, both for ourselves and in public, that this is what is real. This is what is most true. And that simply freeing one's mind in TM or acid trips or whatever is never going to get humankind where it wanted to go. And what Jesus was self-conscious of primarily was his father and his will, his kingdom coming to earth and the spirit who would help the church do it. Well, we think of this God and we can understand young David, you know, kind of got a young John Lennon, a young David says, you know, when I look up at your incredible skies and then I look at my micro self, I wonder why do you bother with us? Why do we even take a second look at us? I mean, I kind of get that, don't you? Ten years ago when Debbie and I and the kids were moving from uh, Yorba Linda to Boise, we had this caravan of like U-Haul trucks and, and one of them, the governor wasn't working or something. And we're like, I don't know, we're in the mountains of Nevada or Utah or something and you know, like 15 miles an hour because this stupid truck wouldn't work. And so we stop and pull over and you know, it was just utterly black. And I remember, I'll never forget, leaning against the side of the truck and I, I looked up. And you know, I'm from Santa Ana. I don't see stars. You know, we don't have stars around here. But I, I looked up and I'm not kidding. I got disoriented. I almost felt like a panic attack coming on. As I just looked up and realized, oh my God, I am just a tiny little speck. And what I was seeing and what David was seeing is a tiny bit of millions of universes. There's a hundred billion stars just in the Milky Way. And so David gets a bit of this and goes, wow, what are we that you even think about us? Now I want you to answer this question, not out loud. What does God think when he thinks about you? Go and name yourself. I don't mean in general, what does God think of human beings? Name yourself. What does God think when he thinks about you? What I actually think is that God's disappointed with me, far from ever giving me, you know, dominion with him in life. He can't be actually happy with me. But what, but what the, the text says to us is that what's real about what God thinks of you comes out of the relational love of the Trinity. 
Do you see now why this is not just some little Christian doctrine? If you want to know what God thinks about you, then you have to know who he is in essence. And that is he is from all eternity a lover of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who eternally love each other. And what he thinks about you when he thinks about you comes out of the essence of who he is. He thinks about that he loves you so much. He wants you to become the kind of person who he would delight in answering your prayers because your inner being would become so aligned with who he is and what he's doing that you'd be praying for what he wants. That's what God's actually picturing us becoming his people, drawn into this Trinitarian love and embrace. And then drawn into that embrace, put in charge of his handcrafted world. Did you hear the Genesis charge repeated in the Psalm this morning? David is hearing again what Adam and Eve heard in the garden. He's hearing it from the spirit that, oh, this is what God is doing in Israel. And we would say, oh, this is what God is doing us in the church. He's making us his cooperative friends, his ambassadors. Okay, so I got to stop. So let me stop with this idea I love from Tom Wright. Tom writing somewhere, I can't remember about the Trinity, um, says... If we're truly speaking of the true God, then the truest form of speech that can ever be said is not an abstract discussion about God. So if we're truly speaking of the true God, then the truest form of that speech can't be abstract. It must be speech addressed to God. It must be worship. It must be prayer. Of course, what's going on in the Trinity? Mutual admiration, out of which is born incredible levels of trust. Nevertheless, Father, thy will be done. Jesus says to the church, you can trust the Spirit. Why? Because we all trust each other. All of us in the Trinity, we all trust each other. And you too, can trust. So if Tom's right, and I think he is, that it must be prayer, then I want to leave you in this quiet moment with this Trinitarian prayer that Tom suggests. I'll say it to you a couple times, but just maybe close your eyes and sit with this for a minute. Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, set up your kingdom in our midst. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Holy Spirit, breath of the living God, renew me and all the world. I'll hear it just one more time. Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, Set up your kingdom in our midst. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Holy Spirit, breath of the living God, renew me and all the world. Amen.